Welcome to the Utah Episcopalians. Now, this is a podcast of the Episcopal Diocese of Utah, where we look at our unique church in this unique land that we all love as Utah. Now, today, we're going to talk a little bit of history. You know, summer is always seemingly a good time to talk about history, and particularly if you're an Episcopalian or interested, or if you want to hear some good stories. And to give us those stories, Kurt Cook. Now, he is the person that knows every story about everything, but today we're going to talk about the fact that he is our historiographer and our archivist and picture collector and things about the Episcopal Church, which is over 150 years old and uh, one of the oldest churches. Now, there's another church that might be a little bit older that we might be familiar with in Utah and a couple, but, you know, it was right up there as a pioneer time. Kurt, what happened in July, early July, a little over 150 years ago? There was a stagecoach that rolled in from Denver with some hot and tired and dusty folks on there. And one of them happened to be our very first bishop, Daniel Tuttle, who was probably so glad to get off that thing, we can't even imagine. Because I can't imagine, it's been hot right now. And think about that week-long trip from Denver on the stage. And so he comes to Salt Lake City. Now, it's very odd, you read his accounts and he actually asked for two things. Do you recall what they are? Oh gosh. A bath and strawberries. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> A bath and, could you imagine you're riding in and, and this is gonna be your home forever. You've come from New York, the civilized area, and you go, I need a bath and strawberries. Now, that's pretty refined. I, <laughs> I might have asked for something a little bit cooler and a little stronger. bit uh, stronger than <laughs> a bath and strawberries. But uh, why Bishop Tuttle and what was he looking for? And we're going back, you know, back to the 1860s. What was he looking for? Well, he had been selected by general convention to be a bishop before he was canonically old enough, you know. Uh, so he had to wait for his birthday to be ordained as a bishop. I think that's the right term. It's not consecrated. And he had had a brother-in-law or two come out ahead of him, and he was looking to establish a new field for the belief system of the Episcopal Church. You know, and so there were school, his folks had started schools here, and it was a good start. But then he was heading to Montana, you know. I, I would imagine when he got off that stagecoach, there wasn't about a thousand Episcopalians oh. to greet him. No. Uh, there might have not even been 10 Episcopalians. I think it was less than that, yes. You know, I think there were like five women who were wives of people at Camp Douglas at the time that were mm -hmm. the stalwarts. And so he was looking for converts. I mean, no question about it. You know. Start the church. Mm -hmm. Well, now, he didn't have a church to go to. There was a building downtown. What was that? Oh, the Independence Hall, built by, I don't know if they were apostate there was possible some, here, but it was built to be independent right. of the local some religion. Congregationalist, I understand. Yeah, right. They were the first ones to mm -hmm. utilize it. They had started a small group. And uh, then the minister, uh, a couple different stories, but was unable to continue it. So we had those people who wanted a different church looking for guidance and direction. And when we say a different church, these would have been people that, of course, Salt Lake City would have been uh, settled a few years early, maybe a decade earlier, 
by those of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And he was looking for converts. Now, Utah, was it targeted because of polygamy? Or oh, gosh, yeah. Polygamy was a strong... It caused a lot of heartburn back east, both in Congress and with the general population, who just didn't feel it was a correct principle, especially in the guise of a religion. So there was hopes that they could spread the Episcopal message, or the message that we have in the Episcopal Church, to help people find a better way. And the better way would have been <laughs> without polygamy, I guess. Without polygamy, yeah. You know. So, he, you know, it's interesting that rather than building churches right away, it's almost like they concentrated on schools and things like that, didn't they? You know, you're absolutely right. On the way down here, I was thinking that the Episcopal Diocese, as we know it now, and the Episcopal Church in general, has always concentrated on bettering your community. And schools were a high priority. You know, educate the children because they're the future. We know that today, they knew it then. Uh, a, a school that's lasted till today, Roland Hall, mm -hmm. formerly St. Mark's Roland Hall, um, that goes back to then? Oh, absolutely. Um, the first one was the school Okay, you'll have to help me out here, Craig. What did Reverend Foote call his school? Was it St. Mark's? It's St. Mark's, okay, and it was, it was in a bowling alley. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a mission at the time. It's, so, it was St. Mark's mission and St. Mark's school. So, yeah, I, from the very first days of Episcopal priest being here. So, we, it was his idea to strike first. <laughs> sure. At the bowling yeah, alley. At the bowling alley, with right. The, with the church, okay. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I've been waiting so, for that. Actually, that was a really good joke. I almost missed it. So yeah, I'm slow. And then uh, let's let's jump ahead a little bit. That he went to Montana. I mean, the Episcopal diocese was Utah, Montana, and Idaho. Idaho, and uh, and then eventually a little bit of Colorado, and some of Wyoming, and a little bit of Nevada. In Nevada for a while. Now that that seems to be about the whole West, uh, <laughs> outside of Arizona. And at that time, we suppose there was enough Episcopalians to fill a church between oh. here and the North Pole? Uh, probably. You know, th th you'd have to go that far to fill the church. Absolutely. But he had great ambition on building a church. And there's a church downtown, Salt Lake City, uh, over on 1st uh, South and 2nd East area, mm -hmm. that's 150 years old now. Absolutely. The first service was on September 3rd. Uh, 1871. And that's the Cathedral Church of St. Mark. Mark. Right. That seemed like a pretty impressive building to build when you had a couple <laughs> dozen Episcopalians. Did he always think that at some point it would hit what it is, or did he want to make a statement? What did he do? Bishop Tuttle, again, we're talking about right. Daniel S. Tuttle, who was the first bishop. What did he do? Why build that church? I mean, it's an impressive church. It's built, uh, designed by Upjohn, mm -hmm. who did uh, Trinity Wall Street, which people know, those that watch that movie, National Treasure, or whatever it was, that's Trinity Wall Street. I mean, he made the most impressive, and out here in the middle of Utah, I'm not putting down Utah, you know, I love Utah. <laughs> We're all Utahns, but what what was he doing to build that entire giant church at a time when it wouldn't have filled three rows. <laughs> um, honestly, I think he was looking for an anchor that people could hook onto, you know, and to be grounded. But also, a statement is not incorrect. 
um, to help him exemplify the beauty of God's message and what it has to offer people and give people a place to focus on, in my opinion. You know, I, he, I think he called it his cathedral in the mountains in his book. Is that, yeah. is that the term? Okay. So it meant a lot to it, I mean quite a bit. And even after he left here to go to Missouri and then became presiding bishop years later, this, this Cathedral Church St. Mark's, the physical building, always held a special place in his heart. Um, I, I hear some anecdotal stories that he put a bell on it because no church here had a bell and that he wanted to, when you rang a bell, it would, um, it would signal that there was a church. We didn't have the Cathedral of the Madeline downtown until 1901 and, and our good friends at the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints didn't have bells on their church. Is there any truth to some of those that he wanted to make sure that if you heard a bell, you knew it was Episcopal Church? It's absolutely true. Even, really? even the Deseret News has a wonderful little article that St. Mark's had put up a bell and it was the first church-going bell to be heard in the valley on Sundays. So it, you know, we were the first to have a bell to ring on Sunday to call people to church. And if the Deseret News says it's true, you know, gosh. You know. <laughs> well, I, uh, there you go. So. No, I, I mean, you hear these stories and, you, and some of it is, of course, um, Urban legend. <laughs> urban legend, anecdotal, and and, uh, uh, and and as far as we know, did he become friends of Brigham Young or anything that you know of, or it just kind of um, he just operated independently? He did. Uh, there was only one documented in his own document uh, time he met Brigham Young, and it just seems he didn't feel the need to meet with him again. Though he didn't also he made it a point to interact with his LDS neighbors civilly instead of attacking them like many other religious folks coming through did at the time. And he felt we, he could win more uh, in respect and open-mindedness from his neighbors if he treated them fairly. So, you know, as far as, again, wanting a meeting with Brigham Young, I guess he could have, but it never seemed important. One of those things that you say the treated civilly and we've talked before about it, that um, six schools in Utah, and they were not just for Episcopalians, were they? Oh, no, not at all. Well, they would have had one, one or two <laughs> students. Yeah, that would have been a problem. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a major problem. But um, actually, from the readings, am I correct that almost half the student body was from the LDS Church? I would say so. Um, they, the folks realized the superiority of the Episcopal schools for the most part and really wanted their kids in there to learn. And they would often pay uh, tuition so the kids could attend. So yeah, it, at least half. Um, well, it'd have to be to have anybody in there, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, he spread uh, the religion. Part of it is, is that if you're gonna get converts, uh, probably <laughs> standing around downtown Salt Lake around Temple Square is not going to be your best bet. <laughs> um, but he went um, out quickly to Montana to, how'd that go for him? He went to mining towns and that doesn't strike me as real church going folk. <laughs> you know, I think he did experience a little bit of disappointment and a lot of the miners preferred Sunday recreation was, was not in a church pew, you know, uh, more than the 
saloon or some other hall that he, there were a lot of the wives of the miners and mine officials really appreciated what he brought to their towns. And he was able to establish functional uh, congregations. Uh, Helena, Virginia City, those are the ones coming to mind right now. Uh, and then he, when he finally came back to Salt Lake, he had a s structure set up that survived him. You know, he didn't have to be there to keep running it. We're talking again Bishop Tuttle, and a bishop in the Episcopal Church is a bishop um, generally for at least 10 years, there isn't a term, and there's um, only been 11 of them, so we're talking that this is, goes on um, quite, it, it's a very unique thing, but so Bishop Tuttle did leave his mark here and was a bishop for a considerable amount of time here. When you walk into St. Mark's, um, do you feel his presence? I mean, I don't mean that like, like, oh, he's sitting next to me. That's probably not a good thing to say. I'm sorry, the seat's taken, that's Bishop Tuttle's. But do you feel his influence? Let's put it that way, 153 years later, do you oh, feel that? Most assuredly. Uh, often I go in and just sit there, especially waiting for a service to start, and think about the folks that came before me, and most notably, Bishop Tuttle, and his cadre of real supported, hard-working folks in the first 10 years or so. And what did they think on a hot summer's day as they're waiting for church to start in their hot clothes? Uh, or when they knew they had established a school, <coughs> or, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery, because that took a lot of work. Uh, were they proud of what they were doing, you know, to better their communities? And I can't help but think they did. Some of the things that I know in reading about the early history of the Episcopal Church in Utah, and I go up to, uh, for example, Logan, uh, where another person who became bishop, uh, Paul Jones, came to, and he put in bathtubs with hot water so that they could provide baths for farmers. They, it wasn't just all about church. He established a library up there, and he even refereed uh, football games at the uh, agricultural school, which we now know as Utah State. Um, then we had in um, Ogden, uh, where there was an effort to try to get the rail workers to um, follow you know, it was kind of like the Salvation Army going around <laughs> in places, you know, follow the fold mm -hmm. uh, with rail workers that probably, again, like miners, were good people, but maybe church wasn't their first priority <laughs> when it came to Sunday, particularly after a long Saturday yeah. <laughs> night. Um, and so there was some efforts, but it, it, it wasn't because they're they were doomed to hell, was it? It was that, no, that no. they wanted to bring something to their lives, right? You know, honestly, from my experience at the cathedral, besides my own personal beliefs, the sense of community of all the various people that come and attend, we're open and you know, we welcome everyone. And it has to have been like that for the folks, like you were talking about up in Logan, or the railroad workers in Ogden, because here was another community, community they could belong to and it was not one that was all, you know, you're part of our community as long as you can give us something. I think it was more, we're glad you're here. 
this is a good time to remind us that uh, you're listening to the Utah Podcapalians. That's a podcast of the Diocese of Utah. And I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese. I didn't introduce myself earlier because I'm not important. Uh, Kurt Cook is who's important today. He's our historiographer. Great name, um, <laughs> not just like history guy. Yeah. It, it gives a real title there. That's like the Episcopal Church. Everybody gets a title. And uh, he's here because he knows everything about the Episcopal Church history. And, you know, we live in the present, of course, mm -hmm. and we are certainly a church that's conscious of an urban environment in here, or sometimes a rural environment in parts of Utah. Um, but it's something when you walk into one of our older churches, you can't help but think about the history. Also with us is uh, Nick Cockrell, who's on controls. And Nick is uh, from the uh, communications department at the Diocese of Utah. And I'm going to put him on the spot a little bit uh, in a few moments to talk about the church history, too. I've not talked to Nick about history, so I'm interested in what's going to come out of uh, his mind about history, because his history is a lot less than mine. Mine is going on. You know, my goodness, I, I, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church in the 1950s, and I know Nick would think, well, that's my grandpa, you know, or something, and probably you do too. But um, what is it, the history, how important is it like at St. Mark's to walk in? And, and I mean, again, um, you're looking at those old beams in the, in the mm -hmm. ceiling, you're looking at that old altar. You're looking at um, then listening to music of, that's been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. How important is that history? You know, that's an individualistic question, but to me it's huge because it augments what I'm doing at the moment, you know, and I can appreciate it. I go around and look at the windowsills in the cathedral at times, all the hand-carved things, and look at the different notches. And what about the guy that made them? You know, this is a workman that probably didn't attend St. Mark's or some of the stonemasons who were chiseling the uh, sandstone blocks on the outside, let alone the very active and faithful members on the inside. And so it's, it's a human connection to me. And I don't, like you said earlier, I don't sit there imagining the pews full of ghosts or I'm sitting in somebody else's pew and I have to move, you know. <laughs> um, but they really, they worked hard and tried to express their beliefs um, and, I and it turned out to be in a physical way, but that's probably not what their belief was all about, just as we do today. You know, there's a lot of lessons we can learn, and I wonder, um, I'm also an, a member of the standing committee of the diocese, and both the cathedral and the diocese are grappling with what's the next phase of church going to be like. You know, so is this what, were these questions they were thinking in 1867, 1871? 1870, you know, how did they view, you know, at the time our, I've looked to our registers and it was burgeoning and yeah. <laughs> membership was blossoming, but, uh, you know, what were their challenges? Yeah. And what did they overcome? When you look at some of the churches like, um, uh, that are gone now, Eureka, mm -hmm. uh, places that before they followed the mines, uh, Garfield out where the smelter is now, uh, these little wooden churches that look like they're in Little House on the Prairie, that they, they built in these uh, places to, 
bring, and, and you look at their records, uh, it's fascinating. It is a church that, of course, um, has to remain current. I mean, we can't get tied up in our history right, no. and live, because it is a, a different church than, than, when I say different, it still has the same ritual, but it, it, it mm -hmm. has to be different. Uh, and we got to get into the hospital. We got to get into a few things sure. that uh, that the church did. Is viewing 1867 like we need to be viewing 2021. What is the need? Right. And and they would build that. Nick, anything that as we've been talking, anything that you've seen as you've gone around and looked at churches yourself and your job in communications, anything that the history has struck you that you go, you know, this is kind of interesting, or what is this? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, first of all, like, I, I, I love history. That was what I studied in my undergraduate degree. I've always loved understanding where we've come from. It helps us know where we're going. Mm -hmm. So when I started working for the diocese a little more than a year ago, I started looking around into the history of what, um, what our diocese has done here in Salt Lake and across our state. And one thing that I know you mentioned that we haven't gotten to yet that really sticks with me and that I think about frequently is is the Episcopal Church's influence on the hospital and healthcare in Utah. Um, I always knew there was a St. Mark's Hospital. I had no idea that the Episcopal Church had been foundational in that nearly 150 years ago. So I, I just, I know that's what I want to talk about and that's what I want to hear more about next. One of the things I love about that, and you can probably tell a lot more than I can, that uh, you talk about modern medicine. Mm -hmm. The Episcopal Church started the first HMO. Mm -hmm. You gave $1 a month, and all the care that you needed was yours. $1 a month. That seems pretty, now, I, I, they dropped that plan. I'm sorry, I went out there and. Uh, you tried for it, it didn't work. <laughs> it, it didn't work. Um, why the hospital? In my opinion, and, I, and this is strictly the world according to Kurt, Bishop Tuttle having been up in Montana associating with the miners, getting to know them, getting to know rough and tough people like stagecoach drivers who were not easily impressed, but there are a number of them that couldn't stop talking highly about this bishop guy. Um, he realized that they were underserved. You know, they had real need for health areas where they couldn't ordinarily get them, and mining back Boy, in the 18, late 1860s, was brutal. There were no, there was no OSHA, there were no face masks. You were getting uh, black lung. Well, black lung was coal mining, but the silica that gets in your lungs when you're mm -hmm. mining other stuff. And these, and then accidents. They really needed that health care, and it was a pressing need, especially down here. Brigham Young didn't had admonished the LDS faithful not to get around mines. Don't get yeah, involved. Right. So they typically shun the miners as well, even though these are folks who are in need. So they're kind of like lepers in a way. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the good LDS folks, but it was just... That was the way it was. It, it was a need in the community. Mm -hmm. And this was a way to make it better. That, uh, that to build that hospital, pretty ambitious when it started. Mm -hmm. One doctor, one doctor and uh, and the doctor's wife played the organ at the oh. at the church. Doctor so, and Mrs. Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. Very very mm -hmm. faithful. Uh, and they ended up at the cemetery that um, also the Episcopal Church was foundational of, mm -hmm. of Mount Olivet. Um, 
but the hospital particularly shined at different areas. You know, if you go to St. Mark's Hospital and you walk down the corridor, you'll see old photos, and particularly in the uh, in the flu epidemic of mm -hmm. the 1918, yeah. um, just just so many of the nurses and the doctors and it, it became a, a institution oh, yeah. and, and a major a major force. Um, do you think that's why when we look at history that today Bishop Hayashi, our current bishop, worked so hard on Medicaid expansion, just that, that foundation of healthcare as being part of our DNA? Absolutely, it's the next step. You know, it's what is needed today. It's where it's not a case of history ruling our lives, but looking at current events and current needs. So yes, I believe that's just a, a true transition to what can be done today. What do you think, <laughs> this is always I love to ask historians <laughs> these things uh, because they're questions that I can't answer. So that's why I love to ask others because I want to see them not be able to answer questions <laughs> Thanks, that <Craig>. I can't. <laughs> um, and that is looking and knowing all the writings of, of uh, Bishop Tuttle, and after him, Bishop Leonard, mm -hmm. and um, some of the others, Bishop Jones, Bishop Spalding. Um, would they be proud of the place today? I think so. You know, um, each of them had their own focuses. Bishop Spalding, uh, kind of a socialist mentality. Well, a little more than kind of. <laughs> I love it that he well, rewrote Onward Christian Soldiers to Onward Christian Workers. Oh, okay. And they sang that in church, Onward Christian Workers. workers. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, he wasn't quite as strong as uh, Bishop Jones's yeah. was accused of being. But, you know, and I'm, I'm not, they were both good workers and, uh, or well, good workers, um, good individuals who really were looking out for people, especially the workers, you know, because they often were the ones ignored. Uh, I mean, at the cathedral, we were lucky enough to have the Wall family, who have this lovely home up on South Temple <coughs> that used to be the LDS Business College, and they would attend, and they could take care of any need they had, but many others couldn't. And so the different bishops focused on different areas that needed the help. Uh, I was just recently, well, within the last three or four weeks, reading Bishop Spalding's accounts of 1905, traveling to the Uinta Basin. He's taking stagecoaches and ferries and a train ride to Park City and wagon, you know, and that's, this is less than 50 years from when I was born, you know, to think that he had to do that to go visit the different areas. A lot of them worked really hard with the Native Americans mm -hmm. in the Uinta Reservation, or the Ute Reservation, sorry, and lots of stories of how they made a difference and helped them out. Uh, because of their being shoved onto reservations. <coughs> so Yeah, we have two churches mm -hmm. uh, in the Ute Reservation and the shoved into reservations is the yeah. right word. And today the uh, church is very relevant out there. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, and in the earlier days at the Navajo reser Reservation in Bluff, um, the mm -hmm. Episcopal, St. Christopher's. Yeah. You know, Christopher's, and St. Mary's in the Moonlight, etc. You know, we're, it's it's amazing how fast tr time 
travels, particularly when you're talking about 1867. <laughs> uh, and, and normally I take that last question, but this time I'm going to ask Nick, anything else? So I, I guess to kind of wrap things up, I, I'd like to hear from both of you. We're coming up on the birthday of the church this next month. And Episcopalians across the state and congregations, what, what can we think about? What can we, what can we reflect on during our worship services and during just our daily lives um, to help, like, about our history? What do you think would be valuable for us to keep in mind these next few weeks um, as we go forward in 2021 in this, this world that is constantly changing? What can we learn from history? Ooh, that's that's an interesting question. Do you want to go first? Or well, you want me to. <clears throat> sure, I can tackle a quick one here. Yeah. Um, so, what can we learn from history? We just came through a pandemic. Um, I am so mad at the folks that attended the cathedral in 1918, especially on the vestry, mm -hmm. because a couple of years ago, when I did a end of World War Two, end of World War One coffee hour display, mm -hmm. I ran across one line in the vestry minutes saying we had to take out a loan to cover the cost of being closed for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, so now we've seen what we've done to help weather a pandemic and then help our congregants where we couldn't be around for quite a while. So sometimes history's a blank, <laughs> darn it. And I've been trying hard to leave records of what both the cathedral and the diocese and other congregations have done. But, you know, it's live our lives and live our beliefs and serve God as best we can. And, you know, look around, look at the names on the plaques in your church and think, who were they? You know, what challenges did they face? You know, were they similar to mine or mine tougher or, you know, just whiny? So, you know, it's, it's kind of picking up from what you said. It's realizing that you are a continuum mm -hmm. and that the issues, any interesting healthcare, the issue of, uh, of monetary things, helping those that are impoverished, um, the miners who weren't making it, the mm -hmm. various, I mean, we hear the stories of the miners who became millionaires. Well, there were a whole lot that didn't. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of widows because of what mm -hmm. happened to uh, miners' early death. Um, I think we look at those names, we look at those registers and we realize how important it is to continue into that, uh, into the future, looking at the same thing when Brigham Young got off that stage. And he was on the corner of 2nd East and 1st South, coincidentally where our diocesan offices are. Mm -hmm. And he might have been within the block somewhere in there. Uh, but he got off that stagecoach and he said, where is my need? Mm -hmm. and I come to work in those diocesan offices, that very same place, and it behooves me to say, where is our need? Yeah. And, and I think that's what history has taught us. And the needs are, are they any greater today? Are they any greater then? That isn't the question. The question is, where is the need? And, and I think if we can do that in history, and I can go one step further that um, this isn't the Diocese of Utah story, but I used to be a member of a church in Los Angeles. Very, it became a very impoverished church, uh, St. Stevenson Hollywood. 
And back in the 30s, the most prominent family was the DeMilles. You might have heard of Cecil. And all and these folks were keeping the church. And he wrote a note on what he saw as the needs in the 30s. And here I was in the 80s and the 90s. And you look at that and you go, my gosh, it's the same. It's the need of the people. Mm -hmm. And so Kurt is very much right. We need to know our history, not to be nostalgic, but to look at what we need to do today. Absolutely. And with that, I think we could wrap up this edition of the Utah Podcapalians, where we look at our unique church in this unique land of Utah. And we have today, from 1867 to 2021, and while I haven't been part of it that all long time, <laughs> I've been you know, going on about 50 years here on that. And that's, uh, so, I, wow, I can't believe that. Um, but anyway, I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, along with Nick Cockrell of the Diocese, and Kurt Cook, who is of the Diocese, is our official historiographer, and we never even asked you what that means, but we'll leave that for another time. Mysteries are good, so thank you.